Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. Please subscribe on Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your pods. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and leave us a review if you have the time. We really appreciate it. Today's episode is going to be the last one of the semester. And I would like to take this time to put out a calling card for anybody who feels up to it to come on the show in the spring. Okay, on to today's show. Today, Nico, Richard, and myself are joined by Brian Gibbons. Brian is a third-year law student at Loyola Chicago. And he came on the show to discuss employment contracts that contain mandatory arbitration clauses. And the conversation then grew into a broader discussion of power dynamics as they exist in our society. It's very interesting, and I think you guys will appreciate it. In addition, Brian is just all around a great guy, and he's very friendly, and I think that you guys will really enjoy listening to him. So, without any further ado, please give it up for the great and powerful Brian Gibbons. And welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. I'm Richard Leibovitz. I'm Nico Espina. And today we're joined by the one and only Brian Gibbons. Brian, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thanks for having me. So, what do you want to talk about today? I, I know it has something to do with uh, arbitration agreements. Is that right? Yeah, I'd like to talk about um, mandatory arbitration clauses in consumer and employment contracts. How okay. much of this conversation is going to be directed towards Hooters? Um... <laughs> I think you're bringing up the the landmark case about whether yes. or not a arbitration agreement was found to be uh, substantively and procedurally unconscionable. That would be correct. Uh, other than that case and what I just said, that's pretty much okay. Okay, so we we can oh, agree to that. Not nearly enough Hooters will be featured in this episode. <laughs> correct. <laughs> that was a little funny. But, uh, okay, so why don't you uh, start? I'm going to give you the floor to you, and you just tell us what's on your mind about this and and. Maybe just even in general, what what are you thinking about these days, Brian? Sure. Well, I guess generally speaking, you know, I, I'm thinking about uh, you know structures of power and how the legal field um, kind of adjusts to unequal bargaining power um, throughout different contracts. You know, employment contracts, simple things as you know buying a cell phone, but specifically about you know this whole thing that they're referred to as pre-dispute arbitration. Uh, agreements, arbitration clauses, where let's say you sign up for a new credit card or a new uh, cell phone account or you get a new job. Um, now, the vast majority of every contract that you're going to sign is going to have a clause saying that you waive your right to file a claim in court and that you have to arbitrate. And that's been happening for decades now. I mean, we had the Federal Arbitration Act going on in the early 20th century to basically hold arbitration agreements with the uh, as enforceable contracts. However, today we're seeing a widespread use of not only arbitration provisions in contracts, but they're actually 
uh, on top of that, they are forcing employees and they're forcing consumers to waive their right to pursue class action or collective action on top of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I work at a, a labor law firm now, and we've done class action lit, um, arbitrations before, and you can be successful doing that, and that's fine. But now the Supreme Court held last year in Lewis v. Epic Systems, rather this year, that those types of agreements that waive your right to file a class arbitration or a collective arbitration are enforceable. And so it's the effect is that it's basically limiting the right for employees to band together to sue their employer. It's banning consumers from uh, working together. And it's just sort of, it's getting to the um, the exact sort of point of the class action procedure was a way to sort of alleviate this situation where there are tons of small fish that need to pool their resources and their and their legal claims together in order to actually find some sort of sustainable uh, legal solution. And now almost every employer you're going to see is going to be requiring you to waive your right to, uh, to sue. And so the Supreme Court basically just bolstered this industry standard now. And we're realizing now that because the court is not equipped to help this, we are stuck with basically pursuing some sort of legislative corrections here. Okay, I think that was a really strong opener, but I I do want to back up a little bit so we can really crystallize and clarify some of the concepts in there for the benefit of listeners who may know nothing about this. Sure. So let's start at the very beginning. There are Advan- diff- advantages and disadvantages. Yeah. Well, yeah. even let's just define our terms mm-hmm. because sure. you mentioned <clears throat> employment and consumer arbitration agreements, and that is different from other types that are out there, such as labor, collective bargaining in like a union sense, where if they reach an impasse, it has to go to arbitration. So what types of claims do you see arising out of employment and consumer contracts that now need to be forced into arbitration? So what's the nature of these claims? Right. I mean, they're exhaustive. Basically, every time you see an arbitration clause, it's going to say any and all claims related to any and all legal interests or legal rights. So Google was just in the news that um, thousands and thousands of employees performed a, a walkout protest against Google because they require their employees to arbitrate sexual harassment claims, any sort of Title VII claims, which legally they can. Um, Should they? Probably not. It's sort of seen as a company's admitting that it's not a matter of if these sort of infractions are going to occur, it's a matter of when and how quick can we basically swipe them under the rug. Mm -hmm. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, arbitration agreements are very standard. I mean, corporations will oftentimes arbitrate claims with other corporations. That was really the entire goal of the original Federal Arbitration Act was a way to allow like massive industry leaders to pursue their own sort of private claims outside of court. Mm-hmm. And whether or not that's a good thing in and of itself is one thing. But when they first passed this law at the beginning of the century, I mean, they never thought it was going to be used to limit a employee's rights to or, you know, a consumer's right to sue a company for screwing them over, so to speak. Okay. So uh, in the little bit of research I did to the run-up of this interview, it seems like some of the most salient uh, claims that are being forced into arbitration that are raising real serious due due process questions would be stuff like racial discrimination in the workplace, would be stuff like unpaid overtime, things things of that nature. But what you're saying is that it really can encompass any and all claims against your employer that you might have in the course of your employment. 
Yeah, 100%. I mean, the Supreme Court said if you signed an arbitration agreement, you've waived your right to sue under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act or ADA claims or Title VII. Until recently, you could not waive your right to pursue a collective action under, as you brought up, unpaid overtime, the Fair Labor Standards Act. Mm -hmm. Um, This new case, Lewis v. Epic Systems, allows employers to basically require their employees to forgo pursuing class or collective-based lawsuits against the company. And um, I currently work at a class action firm, and the only reason we would ever take an unpaid overtime claim is if we could sue on behalf of every single employee. Right. And that's just because the resources into going to get an expert uh, and, and stuff like that. I mean, the discovery cost, is is that a big consideration too, discovery cost? <clears throat> Are we talking about class action arbitration claims that you handle? Yeah, hundred percent. So, uh, class claims are interesting because there you have um, you have a two stage discovery process in class and collective claims. You do what it's called class discovery, where you pursue any and all documents and testimony to show that the employer is treating every employee in the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Once you have the benefit of that discovery, you can pursue class certification. And so in a class action basis, once you're certified as a class, you can finally get to the merits of the claim, so to speak. That's also where 99% of class actions settle. Mm-hmm. Because typically a class action attorney isn't going to take a case that they know isn't a winner. And so the best defense that a company has is to make it almost to make it seem like every employee is different and, sh- and was treated differently and should be treated differently. And thus, they can nullify any sort of class action procedure. But once you have the class certified, then you pursue merits discovery where you actually get to, okay, let's look at the the wage and hour receipts that you have for your staff. Everybody was working 60 hours a week, yet you were only paying them straight time. You should have been paying overtime for those 20 hours over 40 hours a week. And that's when you kind of get into that. So class, I mean, discovery in a class action is absolutely very expensive. But I mean... When you want to do an unpaid overtime claim, your statute of limitations is two years, maybe three years tops. So if one individual employee came in and says, I wasn't paid 10 hours of overtime each week for the last three years, that's never going to be worth any attorney's time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, so how are employment firms adapting to this you know, trend? Right. So now it's it's um, you're seeing... Every time Jimmy John's hires a new employee, they're going to have an arbitration clause. So we haven't hit the point where these claims aren't happening yet because you still have the last two years of employees that never had these arbitration agreements. But now it's it's become a huge part of our intake process. You know, did you sign an arbitration agreement? Was there a class waiver? Usually if the employer's any good, unfortunately, there will be. Because um, from the employer perspective, there's no reason why you would ever not have a class waiver because you can inoculate from these claims en masse. But yeah, I mean, you're going to see class, uh, you're going to see these class action firms and class action attorneys are really going to be struggling to find new avenues because any employer who did their research is going to have these uh, provisions in their employment contracts now. And every company is going to have one whenever you buy their product as well. So we're, you know, you have to kind of get creative and and look more outside of the box, you know, pursuing more antitrust claims to try and get to the industry for some, you know, larger, deep, uh, like uh, ingrained issues. Um, 
we're seeing a lot of potential antitrust claims with employment, uh, with employment, um, what's the word, headhunting services, sort of like scouting companies that are all potentially actually setting wages for the entire industry with the industry support. So there's there's some ways around it to sort of attack like why everybody goes into this work in the first place is to stick it to bad companies that are treating their employees badly. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, unfortunately, going after them in the best way possible to actually help real employees is now being sort of curtailed by the advent of these class waivers. So one question I guess I have is if you it really comes down to the rights of the employee versus the rights of the employer. So I guess the, how what's the argument of the employees don't have to work at this company. They don't have to agree to these arbitration agreements. They can go work somewhere else. Sure. As opposed to the employer. Yeah. Just let's go from there. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the old, the, the old standby. You yeah. don't like the contract. You don't work there. Yeah. Don't work there. You don't, sure. don't buy the product, things like that. But you know, we're faced with now that if every single employer is, has these provisions, if every single company, when you buy their widget, yeah, um, is basically trying to limit their own liability long before you ever buy the product or whenever you start working there, then there is no choice. So I think that whole myth is really going to be borne out in the next few years when mm-hmm. we see, I wish I, I had my numbers on me, but I mean, you're seeing 20 years ago, you'd have maybe 10, 15, 20% of employment contracts would have these waivers. Yeah. Now it's maybe 80 to 90. I'd love to be fact-checked on those numbers, but mm-hmm. it's a staggering increase in the last 10, 15 years. Do you think that came with the rise of sort of mega companies? It used to just be Walmart. Now there's Walmart, Amazon, Target, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Where, yeah, where, it's, where you have so many small, like small, I shouldn't say small employees, but where you have so many lower level employees have you know thousands of people making minimum wage for you and you you if a class action could be terrible for a large company like that so um, would that be i don't know is that the rise of these arbitration clauses and then the other companies kind of caught on it uh sorry uh april 6 2018 it looks like the numbers are in 1991, which was the year of a Supreme Court decision, I think Johnson Highway is at the mm-hmm. 2% of employees were subject to mandatory arbitration agreements. Now, the latest numbers, which I think are from 2015, it shows that it's over 55% going towards 60%. So we can anticipate that it's higher than that. And that number has doubled since the early 2000s alone. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks for checking that out. Yeah, so you see a staggering increase. Yeah. And, you know, going back to uh, what you were saying, I think a big company has the resources and risk management um, employees to basically crunch these numbers where yeah. they can say, you know, we can go ahead with ripping off our employees and we can structure into our budget, you know, a certain number of millions of dollars each year that we're going to have to pay out because we've didn't pay overtime. Yeah. And so big companies are equipped to do that. It's sort of like when Ford, like uh, Ford and the Pinto in the 80s. Yeah. When Ford said, we can pay $9 more to put a uh, rubber bladder in the gas tank to, you know, keep it from blowing up. Or we could put aside a few million dollars a year for wrongful death suits. Yeah. I think it was GM, actually. You're talking about they, they crushed numbers and it was $50 million 
if they would have fixed the problem and forty million if they would have just paid out claims and they chose to pay out the claims. I think it came yeah. to that. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah it, was the, it was the Ford Pinto. My oh. my mom drew that huh. drove that car. She got in a horrible accident yeah. actually uh, in one of those models that luckily didn't explode. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I mean mm. big companies are always uh, equipped to do this sort of calculations mm -hmm. and you can determine whether or not it's ethical, whether or not it's moral. But I think now, uh, because you can waive someone's right to pursue a class or collective action, they don't even have to crunch the numbers anymore because they know they're never, ever going to get a claim again. But mm -hmm. that's interesting you touch on this because um, something I think about from what you've been saying is, so from the numbers uh, Jake, you provided, this is a trend that's growing and it's probably going to, we can all assume it's going to continue to grow, right? Where companies choose to have these clauses in their contracts. Is this the private industry's responsibility to fix or is this for government to step in and take action? Yeah, so I believe it's it's the government's job right now. We're dealing with a law that was passed 100 years ago that hasn't been touched since. Maybe it has slightly been amended when new le legislation is passed, specifically to say that that new legislation does not affect the Arbitration Act. I, I, I'm not 100% sure on that. But yeah, it's... I'm sorry, could you kind of repeat your question? Yeah, so, so there's a trend, right, of yeah. where this is growing, right? And it's primarily the private sector who's taken advantage of right, this, correct? Right. Yeah. So if it's something that we ought to fix, which is what your that's that's your your claim, right? That this is something that we have to hold back in reverse. Is this uh, it should the initiative be taken by the private sector, or is this something that the government, whether it's the judicial or executive or legislative branch, for you know, like what's what's the antidote, I guess, to this? next steps? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you see private industry doing it on occasion. A lot of big law firms were put on blast because even law firms were requiring new associates to arbitrate things like sexual harassment, even sexual assault led by other employees of their law firm, mm -hmm. um, which is pretty incredible to yeah. see. There's pushback there. You see Google after a mass protest coming out and say, we will no longer require arbitration. Uh, interestingly enough, Uber has an opt-out clause for arbitration for Uber drivers. Um, so you see it every now and then. Um, Starbucks, my Starbucks card, I can op I opted out of arbitration. But that's expecting a lot out of the average employee because it's, it's always an opt-out procedure. It's never an opt-in. And so no one will voluntarily ever arbitrate if they're up against someone stronger than them. Right. I think it's fair to say also that the average American does not even know what arbitration is. Yeah, I was going to say this at the beginning. We should clarify the difference between taking a claim to court and a claim to arbitration. Sure. Yeah. So arbitration is sort of it's I look at it as the like a privatized justice system. Um, you don't go into court. There is no public record other than some states require if you let's say if you have an arbitration with the American Arbitration Association. Some states will require them to keep data. Um, California is one of them, which is, and it's pretty interesting to read that data because you'll see that every single employment-related arbitration action brought by the AAA in the last, I want to say my data that I have now goes back to 2013, every single one originated out of a binding arbitration clause in that employee's contract. Hmm. No employee has ever voluntarily pursued arbitration on their own. Um, but basically, arbitration is it's an agreement by the two parties that if there's a dispute, we're not going to go to court. We're going to 
call an, you know, an ex-attorney or a current practicing attorney or a retired judge to serve as an arbitrator, which is sort of um, half judge, half mediator. Um, it's binding. Um, the uh, Any court will enforce whatever the arbitrator decides unless it's flagrantly you know, incorrect, um, mm -hmm. but you're rarely going to see that a court, you know, find against arbitration. But it's the biggest issue I have with it is that it's almost always the employer covering the cost, mm -hmm. um, which results in this sort of repeat player issue where no company is ever going to hire an arbitrator again if they ruled against them the last time. And so you have that issue, but also what I think it is... sounds a lot like witnesses in court, expert witnesses in, in court. Yeah. Yeah, you're not, a company's not going to hire you again if you're exactly you're with the wrong data. Yeah. And they always, yeah, so they, any, any competent, you know, opposing counsel is always going to say, you're being paid for your time today, right? Yeah. But, mm -hmm. you know, you, you mentioned something interesting, which is, you know, it's, it's a private action rather than going, you know, you're not giving your day in court. Correct. So how did the Supreme Court, you know, what was the analysis they used? You know, how, how is this justified? Sure. Yeah. So are you referring specifically to due process implications? Right. Or? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, okay. so, I mean, kind of Richard kind of talked, uh, touched on this briefly about how, you know, an employer has the right to either accept or not accept. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just kind of want to see from, from your take and from what, you know, the Supreme Court has, you know, how did they get to where we are now? Right. So this was this was not a new thing. So the Supreme Court has greatly expanded the scope of the Federal Arbitration Act and how it should be interpreted in the last 30 years. And so there is, you know, existing case law that says there is absolutely no difference from a due process perspective about arbitrating a claim versus having your claim heard in court. Hmm. And they said that there is absolutely no drawback, no exception in arbitration. It poses no threat to a person's due process claims, especially if the parties agree to it beforehand, which is always the case here, because you usually agree to arbitrate either by purchasing a product or by accepting your first paycheck with your employer. Right. Now, most of these contracts, there are thousands of pages, and the arbitration clause is lost somewhere in no reasonable person is going to read the entire contract. Exactly. So how how is this justified? You know, just for just for people that have no idea about the issue. Right. I mean, well, that's sort of the the problem is that it's not the courts. It's it's not you. It's not the other party's fault that you didn't read your contract. Okay. All right. And so that's just sort of like like this unfortunate well settled quote unquote mm -hmm. contract principle is that not knowing the rights that you wave that you waved away is that's not an argument mm -hmm. to holding that the contract should be held unenforceable do you know of any circuit that pushes back on that some do i mean you'll see with you know um there's a circuit split about when you go on a website and they say click here to agree to all of our terms mm -hmm. just to like access the functionality of the website and whether or not that's sort of uh click click wrap agreement is enforceable or not mm -hmm. um but for the most part it's sort of well settled i mean the court you, you bought the product you should have taken it upon yourself to learn what you're getting yourself into okay. it looks like the ninth circuit so that would be california and the seventh circuit so that's us have shown skepticism of clip 
click wrap agreement. And also, I just want to go back and say that you are correct. I'm looking at the AAA, that's the American Arbitration Association annual report, and there has still been no arbitration entered into on behalf of a consumer or employee. So it's all it's all employment employers who are willing arbitration at the moment. I do want to make sure that we really flesh out the due process implications. Can you tell us about what the procedures of arbitration are like? Are, are, is it, are they set in stone? Are they ad hoc? Or is there any predictability going on in arbitration that you know of? Um, there's definitely predictability. I mean, you can expect if you are sta- like a standard collective action overtime claim, um, you have you know, we're rep, uh, one employee representing 250 employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act because they weren't paid overtime or they were required to work off the clock. That's sort of like your bread and butter FLSA claim. And so typically how those work is that, so I should say actually really quick. So when I'm saying class actions and collective actions, they're, they're actually, there's a fundamental difference between the two that I think is pretty fascinating. Your standard class action is a opt-out procedure so that if I pursued it as a class for my claim, let's say I bought an iPod. Oh, that's a little dated. <laughs> um, let's say I bought an iPhone and it exploded. I would pursue, I would file a class action on behalf of everybody who bought this model iPhone from this month to this month who has had it explode in crude terms, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so... If that class is certified, if the court says, you're right, there's no reason why we shouldn't treat your claim different from every other person who bought an iPhone, because the only facts are you bought that iPhone, it exploded. So they're going to say, okay, we're going to certify this class. And when that happens, notice gets sent out um, to the entire country, basically. And there's a website that's formed. You try to market the heck out of it. You say, everybody who bought an iPhone, you are involved in this class action. You don't need to do anything. Just know that it's here. If you do not want to be involved, if you want to preserve your own personal claim, you can opt out of the class action, but it must be done before final judgment is rendered. So that is basically the only time you see people opting out are those that either have like a massively more important claim, someone who suffered so many more damages, or you have these attorneys that go around um, where they basically try to talk someone into being an objector. Um, And an objection, we can get into like objecting to class actions. Um, Basically, it's some attorney who thinks that they can get a better deal and they just try to derail the whole entire class action it's the he, they're the bane of every class action attorney's like bane of their existence. Mm-hmm. Um, they're looked at as as not the most ethical people. Um, sort of the yeah. like an ambulance chaser of the sure, class action world. Sure. Yeah, but so that's the class action you can opt out of. But in a collective action, um, it's much different. You have to opt into the lawsuit. And so when that happens, when we pursue an, uh, a collective action on behalf of one employee. Once we are conditionally certified as a collective, and so what that means is that the court says, looking at the evidence that we have now, it looks like this company is treating every employee in the exact same way. So we're going to conditionally certify this. And what happens when that happens is that the court says, okay, we are going to assist with giving notice to every single potential collective action member. So the law firm who represents the plaintiff. Bitch, why are you on your phone? 
They send. So they, it's it's called court facilitated notice, and so our firm we put together this. Hey, there's a collective action here. Here's what you need to do if you're interested. We believe that your employer is withholding money that you are due. Would you like to be a part of this lawsuit? If so, sign this form and send it back to us. Mm-hmm. And so we are we need every single employee to get this notice and affirmatively decide to opt in. So they're tougher lawsuits to fight because you can you're only fighting on behalf of those that have opted in by a certain deadline. So the collective action is an opt-in procedure, class action is an opt-out procedure. And that's the sort of the big difference between class and collectives. Hmm. Um, this all came out of a, a question that I think Yeah, I had. guess I my question is was a little bit more focused on what is going on in the arbitration room at the time of arbitration. Right. And that would have serious due process implications if you don't know what the set in stone procedures are for arbitration. I know that we mentioned AAA already. They're one of the more scrupulous arbitration organizations, but there are a lot that are more capricious and have less predictable procedures. And so I wonder if you have any knowledge on that and can speak to that at all. I don't directly. I will just note that arbitration is severely underregulated, 100%. Um, And so in, uh, I wrote an article about this whole thing and sort of in my uh, proposal section where I'm saying, you know, like, okay, we're screwed. Here's what we can do legislatively to try to solve this. And a big part of that is that we can start regulating the industry better. Uh, we can find out where there's an arbitrator who's routinely, you know, not providing due process, is making arbitrary decisions solely to help an employer. Some sort of reporting process for that. I always kind of go back to, I don't think arbitration is where we should be having these battles. I think that needs to happen in the court. I think like I, I place my faith in the justice system to cure evil. And so I don't think privatizing the justice system makes any sense. And I think just by regulating it more, we can potentially be like reactively try to solve it. But I think we can easily just pass a law to say, Federal Arbitration Act will not, uh, will, does not include arbit- employment agreements, consumer-related uh, actions, and any sort of civil rights claims. Uh, it it could be simply done. I don't know if uh, you know of any person in the country who's not the CEO of a corporation who would vote against that. However, I mean, so so you 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 personally don't see this as a constitutional issue per se, but it does require heavy legislative you know regulation i think i mean the standard arbitration that a place like you know the firm i work for would have Mm -hmm. they don't fear well i mean you always worry about impartiality but the funny thing is when you're arbitrating you can there's sort of this unspoken it's just like it goes unspoken that an arbitrator is never going to make a decision to cut a litigation or a proceeding shorter than it has to be. So when you arbitrate like an FLSA claim, most most employee side attorneys will tell you we're at least going to get conditionally certified because no arbitrator in their right mind would say would deny conditional certification mm-hmm. and forego another year's worth of 
salary basically from mm-hmm. this. And it's just that's just a weird thing. You know, like it's it's not it, it's that's not good even though it helps employees typically. It's not a good system. And so it's not necessarily a due process issue, but it's just sort of it doesn't smell right to privatize, you know, a legal proceeding. But f- for whatever reason it's 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 now deemed to be completely appropriate and now a matter of course. Um, and so you're going to see these issues that, you know, it, it, for the next 20 years, if, if a FLSA claim isn't going to be brought in a court, then what does the FLSA mean if we have no, you know, court opinions that are interpreting the law anymore? Mm-hmm. And so like... So do you, do you think a solution would be what California is doing, where you're making some of the inner workings of arbitration proceedings public? Would I that be a solution? It certainly helps. Absolutely. I mean, because you can you can see the numbers that Jake was that brought up. I mean, it's it's staggering. I mean, most of the time the employees lose, um, but all the time it's not their goal to be there in the first place. Yeah. And it looks like awards or damages awarded in arbitration are generally significantly less than comparable decisions handed down in a court of law where you have a jury who may be sympathetic. It, I, I don't know whether or not you can get treble or punitive damages in arbitration, but that could have something to do with it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, arbitration, the funny thing is it's you're, you're rarely going to get an arbitrator making a decision on the merits. <clears throat> it's sort of every class action you ever see. There's never a trial. You know, a class action trial is... Usually settle, yeah. They, 99% of the time, absolutely. And so you'll have an arbitrator make a decision for example, we're going to certify this class as a class arbitration. Excuse me. We're going to certify this class as a class arbitration. We'll um, edit that out. <laughs> can yeah. you? That'd be great. Um, no. And they will edit it out. Uh, they will edit it out. <laughs> They'll make a ruling on class cert, and if they grant class cert, any employer is going to settle immediately because sure. there's there's, yeah. there's no point in doing it anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. So it's 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 not completely different from a judge doing it it's just you know i want this to be a public record i want to i want every employer who's being shady and not treating their employees well i want that to be open and i want society to be able to cast judgment on them Mm -hmm. Um, and that's impossible if you have no idea that they're even being sued for this at all because arbitration there's no duty to you know publicize that and you don't know anything about the arguments being raised because the entire file is sealed. And usually the employee agrees that they will not tell anyone anything about the entire arbitration. So, uh-huh. so, there's, so, so there's no word of it, mouth being. It you seems know. that the power really is on, in the arbitrator or arbitrators preceding the case. So do you have you come across in your research who uh, any data that, that shows who these arbitrators are? Uh, are they uh, former judges? Are they, you know, professionals from the field? How are they picked? Does the employer have any saying if it's a tribunal of arbitrators? Right. So yeah, they're typically retired judges, big shot attorneys. Sometimes not so big shot attorneys. I don't know if there's a rule that you have to be a practicing attorney at all. I would assume there is. I wouldn't want to arbitrate a claim in front of a non-attorney. So I definitely know that much. I know for international arbitration, they don't necessarily have to be lawyers or they judges. Yeah. But they do have to be someone knowledgeable in, in the issue. Yeah, I mean, you, there's, you get some say there. I mean, typically if you have 
you mentioned tribunal. So the most common one is a three, three arbitrator panel. And the standard practice there is that one party picks one, the other party picks the other. Mm-hmm. And then the two arbitrators that were picked by both sides, they then decide on a third. Or potentially both parties come together and agree on a third arbitrator. So that almost always ends up with just two polar opposites and then one person trying to mediate. But like I said, why would I want to side with the employee in this case where I'm guaranteed a pretty good salary? I mean, we're talking thousands of dollars a day to serve as an arbitrator. Hmm. You know, the law says what it says it is. I'm probably not going to be challenged in court if I side with, you know, GMC or Chevy right now that's pretty good money that I'm going to possibly get again. And so there's very little incentive to be impartial, um, or at least there is incentive to be not impartial. So the AAA requires arbitrators to have a minimum of 10 years professional experience in the field that is being arbitrated. But most they don't have to be lawyers. They don't. And most states only require that an arbitrator have a bachelor's degree. Gotcha. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. I'm going to put a common challenge to you, Brian. Not saying that I necessarily agree or disagree with this position, but for the interest of the show, <laughs> which is that these big companies have no incentive to continue expanding and to continue producing products or trying new innovative things if they believe every time that they misstep and fall down a little bit that a claim has the potential of being litigated in court and then having a raised judicata effect and where essentially a, a lot of, or like issue preclusive effect where if it's if one person wins that an iPhone explodes in their pocket and yada 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 then other people will be able to come in and assert similar claims so in that sense arbitration is a friend of innovation and economic growth and the it's a testament to the fact that we all get to have new cool products year after year. What, what are your thoughts about that? How do you balance those interests, which really serve the broader public, with the interests of individual employees who may have been harmed, which also kind of serve the broader public? I mean, it, it's two compelling interests. Well, it's true. I mean, I think in the last you know few years, I mean, I was always sort of the evil corporations, you know, suck. Uh, I, I, I'm here for the little guy. It's why I went to law school, things like that. And I think like law school has made me definitely see the other side because you need to, you can't just decide from one point of view. You have to definitely keep the interests of a company um, in check too because if they lose a million dollars, they're going to lay off a lot of people. You're, you're stuck and with the same thing. And the jobs thing. overseas. And they're moving to, or they'll move it overseas yeah. or they'll automate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I get that. But I think, you know, if you're a company and you're putting time and money into putting out a new product, you do need to make sure that it's somewhat safe and things like that. I mean, I think generally, I think there is a duty that if you're going to try and make money off of something, you should vet it to make sure it doesn't explode. And so like tough stance. Yeah, no, I just like, I'm I, forgiving I, this guy. I'm right. forgiving. Like, you, uh, you blow up one cell phone in somebody's pocket. Brian just loses. I mean, yeah. there, there's, I mean, there's even, a less uh, evil position that you could make. I mean, let's talk about Teslas. Last year, like bumpers were fly- like flying off and falling off a bunch of Teslas, and the 
and of course, Tesla has mandatory arbitration agreements for all of its customers. Uh, they can do so because they don't use, you know, third-party dealerships. Everything's gone through Tesla. Mm-hmm. And the statement that Elon Musk essentially said was, well, this is such a pressing issue in terms of environmental impact and, you know, moving forward and not losing momentum on the advent of fully electronic vehicles. Uh, that it was necessary to lose a few bumpers and maybe cause a few accidents in the favor of overall improved climate health and, like and a utilitarian exactly yeah right for what's the greatest good okay. sure and, I mean it's not a completely spurious or specious argument in my opinion no and I I mean I, I would agree but I, I would always just say like it, it doesn't have to be either or it, it, it needs to be both and um, I did a lot of, like sort of going back to like my social justice warrior days, you know, when college, when we would, you know, Oh, those are over now. They're a little, over now. <laughs> I'm still deep down, like college a, a bleeding heart it. for sure. Um, college didn't ruin it for me. No. Um, college students did paying taxes did. No, I love my taxes. I'm currently being audited, but you know, <laughs> what? they're getting every dollar that they, that they deserve. <laughs> You're in the middle I of an audit. It. In the middle of an audit. Yeah. Oh, can you release your tax returns? Can we dive deeper? <laughs> I could use the help, man. I, uh, I, well, actually as a side note, yes, I'm audited because, um, I was an AmeriCorps Vista. I worked for the federal government as a domestic, um, it's the domestic version of Peace Corps. Okay. And the Vista program goes back to the late 60s with JFK. Mm-hmm. And when you do Vista... JFK, for, JFK was dead in the late 60s, FYI. JFK was sort of the brainchild of okay. the Vista program. Right. And then Lyndon B. Johnson actually put it into place. Don't make You're a right. joke about a brainchild. Go okay. ahead. <laughs> um, <laughs> the brainchild. Oh, gosh. Oh, God, yeah. Um, we on, like to have fun. It's our, it was our only Irish Catholic. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, Someday, maybe, maybe another one. Um, but yeah, the Vista program is, is incredible. You really aren't a social justice warrior anymore. <laughs> I am. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah. Uh, we but, need more Irish white Catholic presidents. <laughs> <laughs> Just like one, like a full, <laughs> Just one. A full term, okay. at the very least. Uh, um, and so, uh, yeah, just as an aside, the VISTA program, when you uh, finish a year, you get a $5,000 scholarship to go back to school. And so I cashed that in when I went to law school uh-huh. and I put it in my taxes as if, as if it was a scholarship because that's what I thought it was. So I wouldn't have to pay taxes on it like it was income. Um, but apparently the AmeriCorps program, it's, it's not exempt from taxes. If you receive an education award from the federal government, it's specifically um, not exempt. So that's what caught me in this is that I thought that the federal government would not try to make me pay taxes on a gift it was giving you. A gift it was giving me for like trying to serve the country. Uh, <laughs> no good deed, am I right? <laughs> seriously, <laughs> infuriating. Uh, uh, I, I I failed to you know I failed my due diligence by just assuming it was a scholarship and it would be treated as. So I'm currently being audited. Yeah. Um, but like well, I said, it I, seems you know like you're you're, uh, you're admitting to tax fraud on air right now. So <laughs> uh, accidental. It was not intentional. Fraud. I was mean. Uh, there's, there's no, no mens rea. No mens rea. I was a little yeah. negligent, perhaps. Um, but we're working it out. I've got I've got faith that the you know the country. I told them I was like I I'm more than happy to pay my fair share of taxes. I just need you to tell me how much I owe you. Okay. I don't remember what caused this tangent. I apologize. It's okay. Somebody else asked a question. So are arbitration 
final decision are they uh, like a so what's the difference between that and like a non-disclosure agreement or are they one in the same oh yeah i i would think i mean any any company at the uh, it's i don't know when it's determined i really don't i've had very little exposure to actual arbitration mm -hmm. just because like my firm would prefer not to do it yeah. um but it's it's almost always sealed it's only it's almost always by settling you agree that you will not disclose any information about this and so we were kind of talking earlier about um i think jake was talking about you know res judicata when it comes to this kind of thing and so and this kind of goes back to one of your first questions about what are you know labor firms and consumer firms doing now generally when you had prior to the supreme court saying class waivers were legal you had pending class actions all over the country that were being stayed waiting to see what the court was going to say and so you had potential class actions benefiting thousands maybe tens of thousands of employees they had all signed class waivers but the courts weren't sure if those were even going to be enforced or not so they said we're going to wait the supreme court's going to render their opinion and then the that judge is going to make a decision and so after lewis v epic systems you saw every employer saying Okay, judge, motion to compel arbitration. This is clearly an enforceable arbitration clause per our own Supreme Court. Justice Gorsuch, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I, I can't even be funny about that guy because I just like I just don't like him at all. <laughs> One thing I'll say about Justice Gorsuch's opinion within the Lewis v. Epic Systems, uh, he didn't write any of it. He ripped off uh, Judge Ikuda from the Ninth Circuit, her dissenting opinion, in the Ninth Circuit's uh, companion case, he just took what she wrote and wrote his name on it. And I, I was waiting for someone else that like, like a, a talking head could say that just to like make this guy seethe. And you are that talking head. I don't think <laughs> I'd like to think Justice Gorsuch is going to listen to this someday. <laughs> but like, I would have liked, will. I liked will. someone <laughs> to write an opinion to just say Justice Gorsuch didn't provide anything new. He just took a cuda and said, here you go. I'm obviously just going to side with um, that same, I don't know what, but uh, it, was, it, it was a garbage opinion. I think uh, Justice Ginsburg dissent was one of the greatest I've read that she's written. It was an incredible dissent, but I, I think you, you got to see this guy who just obviously forgot why he became a judge and a lawyer in the first place. But that might be a little strong. But Whew, that being Justice Gorsuch. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Just so we're clear, he, those are the opinions of Brian Gibbons, not Loyola or Dialogue Denial. Yeah, uh, the guy who forgot why he became a judge like five well, months just, after he got seated uh, to the Supreme Court. He said, and a lawyer oh. in the first place. <laughs> he was just so smug. I just like I can't stand it when a Supreme Court justice will say something like, you know, for whatever policy reasons, the law reads this way. This is the law. And they say it with such smug gusto <laughs> that you're forgetting that four other four other justices who are just as qualified, if not more than you, say that you couldn't be more incorrect with what you're saying. So, like, well, why, why do we more than just one on the bench? But okay. well, the four I feel like we're getting the, the four dissenting stuff. judges. I mean, yeah, but that's why there's more than just one judge on the Supreme Court. It's exactly. For but I guess I'm just saying that like this whole like it's well settled law. The law can only be interpreted this one way. Every side does it. But it's like, can we all just appreciate that that's 
probably not true that both sides are just as reasonably correct. Is, is it U5 fa- just lean a certain way, and that's why you decided? The is way it you fair decided. to say that you, yes, this is just like you have a problem against uh, people who take the the law textually, like against those who hold to originalism? I just think like any excuse to not look at the real life implications of what you're deciding and, you know, realistically what's going to happen from your decision. Every time you choose to just not worry about that, Mm -hmm. it's usually one particular type of opinion, one particular person with a very specific reason why they're not going to look at the implications and the impact of this case. So interpretation ought to play a big role. I think so. And I think Gorsuch even kind of like brought that to a fore where he says, this might as a matter of policy not be good, but this is what the law is. And that's my job as a judge. And like, I kind of appreciated that sort of because it's sort of like, yeah, it's a wake up call. We're just one branch of the government. Yeah, we can't do everything. And so I do like that. And I am sort of like law school has been this moving away from my sort of like bleeding heart. I'm not going to even listen to you if you have an opposing view. You just care about corporations and money and you don't think of the little guy. That used to be my approach. And I think it used to be on both sides how we conduct ourselves all the time. And I think in the last two years, I'm trying to really like, no, judicial restraint from like a very foundational, you know, point of view does make sense. Not having sort of an activist approach to interpreting the law I think to a certain extent, I can get by with that because I think what progressives um, like me will never really remember if we're going to cut corners, if we're going to change things to help our own policies, the other side is going to do the exact same thing. Exactly. And we'll have no one else, we'll have no one to thank but exactly. ourselves for that. Um, that's the, I'm really the, glad the, that you see uh, that because there's so many people from the left and especially progressives and liberals who don't understand that any interpretation has not only drastic consequences for whatever case is being decided at that moment, but also moving forward. Yeah, so I think um, that's kind of like one of those cool things about law school is looking at, I mean, we have a... a a legislative drafting course where the sole point of it is what are the unintended collateral consequences of this law that we're currently writing? What's this course? It's just called, I think, legislative drafting. That's um, yeah. huh. But that's the whole point of it is that like, let's look at something like, um, like sex offender registry. Everybody would, I mean, generally speaking, I think the entire population's in favor of that to a certain extent. Jake is actually pretty Who adamantly knows? against it. Yeah. Well, I think cause there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> There are a lot of like interesting consequences that was a lie. of that. Of <laughs> some people who we would never ever refer to as sex offenders, but for whatever reason are now on that list. Yeah. And you know, so it's just like just sort of one example, but just people who have a really good idea they think that's gonna solve a lot of ills in our country, it can have negative impacts mm-hmm. on good people or yeah. potentially, you know. Not not necessarily good people, but right. There's people all that talk about big government run amok. There's sex offender <laughs> registries. There's also there's also he's kidding. There's yeah. also uh, joke joke joke. There, there's also the you know with that there comes like the should people who were 20 and had sex with someone who was 17 be on a registry for the rest of their life? And so there's there are flaws in the system, but I think as a whole, no one is really 
uncomfortable with the idea of a registered sex offender. Right, but I think, I think the right. example I think about is, you know, a couple of guys that go out, party, uh, get drunk, and then you wake up in, like, a, a park naked, and then there's kids that happen to be playing that morning, and now you're, you know, a registered sex offender for the rest of your life. Does that stupid. happen? Well, I, I think, I think if, if, yeah, if you think about it, that's... It could it, happen. It's, it's public exposure, and, I mean, it, it's, you didn't intend it, but now you're a sex, registered sex offender for the rest of your life, and I don't think the law was intended for that. Don't... Before. Greatest example you yeah. could have used. Don't, don't ask me why, but do y'all remember the red stripe beer guy hooray responsibility no no like if your friend has had too much to drink take his keys can i have your keys no if he won't give you his keys take his pants may i have your pants <laughs> sure and he just hands him his pants he goes hooray responsibility for some reason that just popped into my head nice red it's stripe. a great commercial. throwback yeah yeah wow uh anyway <laughs> So, moving on. Yeah. Mo- moving on. Okay. So, uh, Richard's nickname, uh, Wu Tang nickname is Killer Conversation. So, the two Ks. Yeah. So, moving on. Um, right. Okay. So, he. Ha- so Gorsuch has the personality and wherewithal of the color beige. But <laughs> let's 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 move on. Uh, yeah. Let's. Move I on. did want to. The. I, I just. I, yeah. I applied to be his clerk next year, so maybe. You know. Oh, so this is going to work out great. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, he prides himself on hiring liberals, so he says. So does Kavanaugh. You want to work for him? So, <laughs> here we go. Uh, non-disclosure agreements. Uh, you, you mentioned non-disclosure agreements, and, and so my question is: Don't those violate the same rights that you're? I'm going to say complaining because I can't think of a better word right now about in arbitration clauses in that it also bypasses the court system. So typically if you have a class action or, or conditional or rather uh, collective action, settlements are extremely, they're vetted a lot more than a standard settlement would be. Right. Because the judge has to make sure that not only is it a good deal just for it's so where plaintiffs attorneys get into a lot of trouble is they try to get a shoot a shit ton of um, attorneys fees. Right. And it'll be situations where uh, everybody in the class gets a 25 cent off coupon. I, I didn't mean NDAs <laughs> after a after a court decision. I meant let's take Stormy Daniels for an example. Mm-hmm. Like. The best example. Wouldn't that also buy? Yeah, I'm loving the direction of this podcast. The, yeah, the, no, this is going to be fun. Wouldn't that also bypass the court system in the same way as an arbitration agreement? In that he he was like, "Here's one hundred thirty thousand dollars. Don't say anything." And now she has given up her right to sue because she and, and she probably could have been pressured and probably was pressured into doing that to begin with. So well, it was. It was she got to choose. She got to take a lot of money mm-hmm. for the, and, and it's right. A, but it's isn't a, that the same? Contract. Isn't it's, that the same argument as uh, as employing men let, hiring? Let, let me add. Just correct me if, if I think I'm seeing this correctly. That I think the difference for me is that an NDA is after the fact, and both parties are actively negotiating a non-disclosure agreement. An arbitration clause is something that's one-sided, really. At the end of the day. That's sort of, yeah, you're kind of hitting the nail on the head. I mean, I, I think what the biggest flaw of this whole it's a voluntary contract myth is just it's that is what it is. I mean, 
nobody who's standing to get a job paying eight, ten, twelve, fourteen, sixteen, twenty dollars an hour. Uh -huh. No one That's is going broad, to not take range. It. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, we have claims where people are making really good money and not being paid overtime. You'd be surprised. But I think there's there's no right to choose where you work today. And I don't think there really ever was. That's, that's a wild statement. I wholeheartedly disagree with you. <laughs> that's fine. But okay. It's a wild thing to say. Well, yeah. I, okay. No, but I, if, I, if I, I have I, a high school degree, mm -hmm. I, I can take a lot of jobs. I can work for a lot of people. Uh -huh. My rights and what I can expect from those employers is going to be the exact same no matter where I go. Okay. They're all going to say you waive your right to sue. And so there's no choice anymore. So the idea of saying you don't have to take that job is not true anymore. Couldn't you start up your own company? Well, well, sure you can, but like that's also like that's just not really how the world works. You need a lot of luxury um, to be able to do so, or you need you need things. I mean, we just we can't expect everybody is just going to like start the next Apple. Like life is too shitty for way too many people right but if somebody didn't start the next apple then microsoft would be the only company dominant right now remember when they were in the in the middle of lawsuits for monopolies and if somebody didn't start the next google so i really sure. don't agree with what but, you're but, saying but I, 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 think, I, think I think that that there is an argument to be made that you could just start up your own company and that's that's kind of what's happening with all of these uh incubators in l in uh san francisco where they're starting up apps and and companies and things like that but yeah but i don't think that's those a, are all rich white people but that's exactly well, rich international it's the rich white people that own the companies i don't think that's a fair representation of the entire american workforce so i although i i see marion i was just using that is, as, right, as an example so, so you have especially in the rust belt you have a lot of towns where maybe you have just one big company you know, who's the employer for 80, 85% of the population. Yeah. There. They don't have much choice, right? These people that are working on that company really don't have the same choice that a recent Loyola Law graduate has here in Chicago with thousands of law firms to their disposal. Yeah, but you don't have a right to a job that you like in that town that you grew up exactly. in. Exactly. I agree we, with that. We need to have some mm -hmm. sense of economic and workforce mobility. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at the numbers right now. From the early t uh, 1990s to 2016, mm -hmm. the percentage of the workforce in the United States that only had a high school graduation or lower was around 35% and is now below 22%. So it's, it's right around 21%. Uh, compare that with the number of people that have some college or a bachelor's degree has mm -hmm. shot up dramatically. But do you think do you think this should at least be taken into consideration, kind of like a case by case analysis? What's this? So, so the discussion we're having. So, so for example, it's it's not easy. I don't think it's fair to say that someone who recently got laid off for whatever reason and has a family they have to provide for and they need to find a job and they just they they have really no choice when only they have just one employer, right? They don't have the luxury to spend the time and and go, you know, market shopping for the right conditions, right? Sure. So I guess there's an argument to be made for the little guy or the one that's been really, you know, it's, it's the, the argument of choice there is almost illusory. Let me, yeah, but what, okay. Let me also say though that by limiting choice with the way these towns Richard, are doing it. Richard, you got to lean into the mic, man. By, by limiting choice with the way these towns are doing it, the 80, 85%, 
we're seeing, especially now, especially with, you know, bringing back coal, which isn't going to happen. Um, we're seeing that these towns were relying on the on a, this one company to uh, to b- produce eighty five percent of the jobs. Those companies will eventually fold, and then the town is screwed. So there is something to be said about having a diverse workforce and no, starting up new companies in those towns. I agree. So I think so. Yes, starting a new company is great. It's one of the most American things you can do, but it doesn't happen like I can quit my job today and I am making money and supporting my family tomorrow exactly. with my oh, new company. Yeah, of course it's not. But that's anybody that's ever started up a company can tell you they at some point lived on somebody's couch unless daddy that's, provided it for them. That's great. You'd be surprised how few people know anyone with a couch they can even crash on. I just think like you, your average low income worker who's working full time for you to go to them and say, you know, I'm sorry your employer's screwing you. Did you think about maybe just starting your own restaurant? Mm-hmm. They're all going to tell you, well, no, asshole. Like I'm working this shitty job. I'm, I've got two <laughs> kids. I'm going to night school. I'm going to better myself. It's going to take a few years. In the meantime, I think it's a little fucked up that this company is taking advantage of me because they know that I'll never sue them because I'll never find an attorney willing to work on a contingency for me. Well, so, I mean, here's how I think about these, and I'm more of a, I think I'm probably the most uh, ardent free marketeer of the group here. I I see individuals or I I see these broad populations that we're talking about as as nothing more than a collection of individuals who, if each decided that they're not going to stand for these arbitration agreements or these mandatory arbitration arbitration agreements and decided to boycott these companies uh, and take their labor elsewhere. I mean, their labor is more valuable than whatever power the corporation wields. The the corporation is powerless, if not for the constituent parts of the workforce that makes it up. It it doesn't run on its own. It has no heartbeats of its own. Right. But but this is this is highly technical. And this kind of goes back to what we're saying. Are you making an argument for unions? No. <laughs> yes, he is. is. No, I think I'm he could. No, I'm not. I'm not. So all the uh, yeah, all these employees should band together and perhaps pursue <laughs> no, 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 some no, sort that's of not collective what, bargaining that's not what agreement. I said. That's not what I said. I said each indepo- if each individual employee decided that they do not want to subject themselves to these mandatory arbitration agreements, they could take their labor elsewhere. And I wholeheartedly believe that. I mean, there. Again, I would like to drive home the point that you have no right to a job in general in the United States. You have the right to do whatever you want. You can let yourself languish on the couch all day if you want to. But if you decide to go get a job, you certainly don't have a right to a job in the town that you're currently in. You have a right to go and pursue freedom and adventure in the United States. And that might take you to whatever strange corner you never thought you were going to go to. And I, I, I definitely am not making an argument for unions because I'm saying that these people can go and fracture to wherever they want. Mm-hmm. you know, And they can go and, and engage in whatever kind of economic activity that they want. I, and they can negotiate those contracts with these employers and corporations on a one-to-one basis. That's the best way to do it. I... And that does sound good. I, I guess my, you're gonna make an empiricist argument about how that doesn't work that way, and it's yada yada yada. Right? I too want to put. Yeah, I, I would make that argument. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it, it it doesn't. I mean, just put yourself. You know, yeah. I mean, some, you know, someone who is you know cleaning hotel rooms. Um, this does not translate to them. I mean, like imagine coming to them and saying that. What would their response be? You're right, uh, or um, what know. are you talking about? They were all picketing downtown all summer. I think they have some clout. Well, they have a union. That's why. Yeah. 
What you're describing is the employers. So the lack of unions here uh, is what's putting all these employees that are stuck with only um, fighting for themselves. And so the one basic legal process that allowed them to come close to fighting at this on the same level as their employers was that they were representing every single employee. So they were saying, okay, fine, we're not a union, but I'm going to vindicate the rights of myself and every other employee that was screwed over by you. And now they can't even do that. And so now we're, they have even less power. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not anti-union, by the way. I just wasn't making an <laughs> argument for unions back there. I think unions are fine in the private sector. Uh, my big problem with unions is when you can collectively bargain against the government in terms of police or firefighters or teachers unions, and then whatever collective bargaining power you have ultimately comes out of my pocket as a taxpayer. And I know you like paying taxes, um, but <laughs> I don't really like it. So that <laughs> that's my big problem with unions. He's sure. pretty consistent on that, by the way. <laughs> well, hey, uh, you know, I this is the new question. I, I in like the spirit of being able to not just write someone off because I think I might know how they view the world. Jake, what do you think the role of our federal government or, you know, even in Illinois, what is the role of the government for you? What do you think the government what is worth paying taxes for? Well, I mean, so public goods, right, uh, in terms of non-rivalrous and non-excludable. So federal level, that would be the military primarily, and then some necessary government agencies. And we could debate, like, we could have an educated debate about which one of those agencies is necessary. And then on the Illinois level, it, it gets even more narrow. I mean, so public goods would be police force. But again, I, I because I support the police in which I do, in the fire service, which I do as being a former member of it, then obviously I, I want them to be flourishing, but I don't think that a mandatory union, which a lot of these are mandatory, especially in the fire service, I don't think that's a good idea because it's too powerful and the externalities don't lie with the government. The government doesn't function but for the money we pay into it. So it, we have to really think about the fact that it has a diffuse impact on every single one of its citizens who are subject to the laws of the state. Um, the role of government in general is to make sure that you don't steal from me and that I don't steal from you and I don't hurt you and you don't hurt me. Uh, other than that, I don't see any really legitimate function of government. But what, uh, when you say steal, is it just purely economic? Uh, no, it would be property rights. The rule well. of law. Right. Let, yeah. me, let me ask you, do you think that there should be that police, firefighters, and so forth should be allowed to unionize at all? Yes, they okay. should, but they should not be mandatory. Okay, what, then, my question is, what do you say to the, and I'm not really, I'm not a big fan of unions in general, but what do you say to the argument of the ones who are not union employees end up benefiting from union negotiations because their salaries and things like that go up. Uh, I would say that that so be it. I mean, if you want to unionize, you can't be upset when other people benefit from your collective action. Mm -hmm. um, my gut is that the unions will quickly be driven out of the fire and police force if they are not mandatory. And that's why they are mandatory right now. Yeah. Is that because they know if there's one crack in the facade or the, uh, the edifice of the union and somebody gets through and negotiates for, you know, maybe less health care, but more 
potential for bonus at the end of the year or something like that, something that mixes it up a little bit. Well, then the government's going to be like, okay, well, I'm sure we can go out and find a hundred, probably a thousand other people who are like this. Okay. And, and quickly these unions will be shown to be as irrelevant as they actually are. Okay. Would you say that the average police officer in the city of Chicago is in favor of their union or not? I have no way that would, that would involve a lot of, uh, Mind reading. And in my experience, though, generally speaking, are there any numbers? I mean, do we see police officers? Because I just see, I mean, from me, who who hears it in the news, I, I see that unions tend to help police officers, especially with keeping their jobs um, like teachers. I mean, and I think so. I think Chicago is a bad example. I think the unions here have run historically and even today have run pretty foul with uh corruption well just I mean, jo- government jobs in general yeah. have have run roughshod on the city and and uh it's it's members because i, oh, I don't know anything about this let's talk about the fact that uh illinois right now can only issue junk bonds like and no other states will buy them up because they know that they're not going to see they're going to see like what like three percent return in like 30 years on these bonds maybe and, yeah. yeah if they don't get defaulted on so like the city's bankrupt and a lot of it has to do with these over uh overly generous pensions that firefighters police officers and government workers generally are receiving i mean if you do electricity for the city of chicago for 25 years you're probably going to be making something in the neighborhood of 90k for the rest of your life plus government insurance Mm -hmm. i mean which we can debate the merits whether or not you think that's right but I, I would venture to find another electrician working in private sector who gets those kind of like sweet deal benefits after 25 years on the workforce. And, you know, and that's the result of collective bargaining. It's not that there's a bunch of aldermen sitting in city council who thinks it's a good idea to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think some of it has to is the ridiculous pensions here, too. But well, that's what I was saying. Yeah. After you retire. Yeah. 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 I guess hey, it's a bulk of it. Well, when I, when, when I see those things, I always think, you know, are we, is it really worth our time to be fighting over these, you know, auto workers who are making six figures? And there's this sort of like old school mentality of like, this guy doesn't even have a college degree and yet he can get this job and he can make a six figure salary and work in this job and get a good pension and come out of it. You know, goddamn the unions for that. And we, I, I wonder about, why are we focusing on them where there's such greater economic issues? Um, why are we focusing on the unions? Why are we focusing on this one, you know, this school teacher who worked 25 years and graduates with a, a pension, she's making 70 grand, where some corporation whose CEO is making tens of millions of dollars solely to drive it into the ground so it could be chopped up for bits? It's. We're like, it's just, I think it, it's a little, it's, it show, it's kind of a tell that we, we we're picking which injustice, quote unquote, we want to, we want to like pick on and say, this is what's wrong with the country. Well, Cause only one of those is an injustice to me personally. Like the teacher is a matter of public concern. The private corporation is of matter is of no concern to me. I mean, if I think that they're doing unethical, if they're treating their employees unethically, then I don't have to buy their products, and there's I probably a, won't. There's also a sure. There's also a concern. You're saying with these CEOs that are making, let's say, thirty million dollars. 
the problem is not the CEO that's making $30 million. The, and it's not the teacher that's making 70K in pensions. It's the hundreds of teachers that are making 70K that far, those numbers far exceed the, uh, uh, far exceed the one guy who's making 30 million. If you think it's wrong for someone who's, if you think it's wrong for a school teacher who's doing like an extremely important job in this society, I'm not saying it's wrong to make that much money. I'm not saying it's sure. wrong. I'm saying it's it's clear that that's what's driving the budget deficit. That's in Illinois, right? Well, I guess I'm just saying I, I we we focus on yes, we in the in right. the collective. The the reason right. the reason the CEO is making fifty million dollars is because the company can afford to pay them fifty million dollars. Otherwise, they wouldn't be making it. Mm-hmm. The the teacher pensions. That's you're talking about people who I don't know what the exact numbers are right now. Can you pull that up? But yeah, right, but uh, I, I, what's but, the, what's the question again? I, li- I like the, what or what does the average teacher pension in Illinois pay, and or not even just teacher pension, the average public official pension because it's like it, it is insane what they're paying out, and it's and it's clear like it's it's the same with the federal budget. You can look at you can cut. Anytime I ever hear any Republican say that the NEA is a waste of money, I roll my eyes because it's not going to do anything to completely abolish the NEA. And, you know, and it's the same thing with military def- budget. It's yeah, it's big, but two thirds of the budget are uh, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and the Affordable Care Act. So if if we're going to do nothing on those. It's not really going to bring it to a balanced budget. It's just going to reduce the deficit a little. Mm-hmm. So I, I, when it comes to so with the all the teachers that are making seventy k, eighty k, and I'm not saying that they don't deserve it. I'm just saying Illinois can't afford it. So well, that's so cracking down on that. It's not so much that we're trying to punish them in, in, in the because there's no reason to punish the teachers that that busted her ass for twenty five years and now wants to retire and get her paycheck once a month. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's more of the, there's no way of paying it. Right, but let's say... And it's let's going say it's I, going to cause the state to default. Let's say I, yeah. I subscribe to what you're saying, right? Yeah. And then we get rid of those ridiculous pensions. Yeah. It's just purely economics. No teacher is going to want to continue teaching. Right. Right? So then you're going to have a deficit of teachers. And how do you... Yeah go about solving that I don't think that's right I don't think that's right all right can you elaborate I I think with the pension um to cut you off go ahead yeah no go ahead uh it is your episode after all (laughs) well it's like you signed a contract guys you know like I took this job with this goal this is nothing new you knew for the last 30 years I was working for you I'm due this pension we as a society all agreed yeah, that's a good incentive to get people to work. It's a good role for the government to offer these sorts of benefits and services. And I'm sorry, Illinois isn't doing really well economically. I actually, but like, yeah. Why, like, it's sort of like it goes back to it's the flip side of you didn't like the job, you didn't have to work there. I actually, you, I yeah. liked the job and I worked bit? it, and now you are fucking with my shit. I actually agree with what you're saying. Could the you people lean in a little bit to the mic when you lean in. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. I yeah. actually agree with what you're saying. The 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 teachers who are now, or it's not just teachers, the people who are now retired and receiving pensions, they did agree to that. That was a clear agreement between both sides, and they have to pay them out. Yeah. I don't know how they're going to do that without without defaulting, but going forward, if they continue with this line of pensions and all this, if they do not make any alterations to governmental contracts that they have, mm-hmm. this problem will not stop. 
it will continue. All right, so I have some stats so, for us. Yeah. I, I'm, I think I'm on your side with that 100%. Yeah. yeah. This isn't going to go away. I mean, you have, to, you have to find a way to pay the teachers out unless you just bankrupt the state, which might be an option. We need to raise but, taxes. It, 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 I don't know if that'll do the job, if that'll even do the trick. 100%. Companies are moving out right and left to Indiana and uh, Iowa and all the surrounding states and Michigan. People aren't going to leave Chicago. Okay, so well, they might. I wouldn't be so surprised. All right, so people, anyway, I don't think people are going to leave Illinois because they might have to pay another thousand dollars in taxes. I mean, maybe they will, it's, and that's their decision. But it's not the individual; it's the company that their their taxes get raised, and then they move the jobs out, and those people lose jobs. Great, and we should judge those companies. We should say, you know what? I don't want you to be a company anymore. It's like when uh, you see this happen all the time. If if they say, oh, it, we're driven by the market. We're solely driven by the market. We're solely driven by the market. And then they just, they up and move and they screw over good people. And we're supposed to still support them and then blame the government because they're requiring something that isn't reasonable. And I think it's like, it's a brilliant fake philosophy that people buy into now. And they think like corporations have convinced everybody in this country that it's not their fault. It's it's the government for imposing these intolerable regulations and these horrible tax burdens on them where they have more than enough money. Well, the state governments, it, because they can move to other states. That's that's where competition comes in. Sure. Well, and then you're stuck with the race to the bottom. Yeah. And you're like, great. So our state, we're not going to offer any benefits and services to our people. So we don't have to pay any taxes. So every company can get here. And 20 years when the water isn't drinkable and the air isn't breathable, who cares? They'll pick up and go somewhere else. Sure. Instead, let's let the Illinois government go bankrupt. Jake, uh, you had a comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, we could, you and I could have gone on there for quite a while. Illinois is slated to pay out $17.3 billion in pensions uh, this year to only about 483,000 retirees. So what's the what does that come out in average? Uh, right. So I I don't have averages, but I have medians for. Hold on, give me the numbers again. Seventeen point three billion. Yep. Okay. And you said, and what was the number of people? Four hundred and eighty-three thousand. That's uh, about thirty-five thousand apiece. Wait, is it? Yeah. Oh wow, that's while while we do this, I, there's a question I wanted to ask you, Brian, because you mentioned that before coming to law school. You used to have more of a, a binary way of thinking where us to them, if you don't subscribe to the way I think, I'm just going to assume you're wrong. And law school kind of made you go um, deeper and want to have dialogue with people and understand the other side more in depth. So what was it that happened during law school that kind of changed that in you? Yeah, um, it wasn't like a it was sort of like a I don't really we don't need to talk about it I don't really need to hear where you're coming from because I know I'm not going to be able to change your point of view mm -hmm. and so why invest like our time into like yelling about politics and all this stuff where we're going to go away either probably even more polarized than we currently are although I, I I'm a I staunch believer in the that our country is not polarized our politicians are um, the average person is not solely because you see that we're voting for a Republican at one point and then a Democrat at the other. There are the vast majority of the country will think, you know, think about both sides for the most part. Maybe not the vast majority, but I think there's a lot more independence in the world than we think of. 
But I just think that like when I came to law school, sure, maybe the goal of being able to change your mind so you vote how I vote isn't really the like that shouldn't necessarily be the end for this. Mm-hmm. It's maybe that like we all think like when I, I talked to a, f- a friend of mine um, who's very different politically from me. You know, I was like, what do you think about Democrat? Like, what do you think about us, like, like progressive 20 somethings that all want to, like, change the government and change the world? And he says, well, like, to to be honest, it seems like you, like, don't love our country that you kind of like you're going to say, like, oh, I'm going to move to Canada if Trump's elected, things like that. And when he told me that, I was like, that's crazy Mm -hmm. to me. But that's how he's not the only one, you know, like that's. It's, it's crazy to me that our, we each have these like visceral reactions and we get to like try to say, oh, I know how you think of the world, what you think the role of government right. is, and how other people factor into your own and life. And just by asking simple questions and having conversations, just you build some common ground. It was uh, from there. Exactly. And like to bring up Louis C.K., I, I say what you want about him, but in his show, he had this really good show called Horace and Pete. And it was a direct to the internet uh, show. And it's, it's, it's just like a long play in, in episode parts. It's really, really funny, really good. But there's a, you know, hardcore liberal on one side, hardcore conservative on the other, and they're yelling at each other. And someone, a third party observer comes up and he goes, so all you're saying is as a Democrat, you know, all you're doing is you're saying, you know what the Repu- like what the Republican thinks about the world. And every Republican is just going to say, I know what you Democrats think. Mm-hmm. You just want to like take money away from the military. You want to move to Canada. You want to just like smoke your pot and enjoy yourself. And the Republicans then the- are actually coming around on that point, by the way. Because there's some money in there, man. Right. Hopefully Illinois. <laughs> they finally figured, figured out that we out. could just tax it. Boom. Yeah. The only money, the only color is green. But then on the other side, you have the, the only Democrat, double the only Democrat saying that like, uh, oh, you Republicans, you just want to go to war, spread American ideals. You don't care who you kill in the midway. You don't care about anybody. You just think chair. Yeah, it but used like, to be the other way. By the way, it used to be that the the with the military that Democrats wanted a small military, but they wanted to send it everywhere, and Republicans wanted a big military, but they didn't want to send it anywhere. And that's they said that like that's how you could tell the difference. Those lines have become completely oh, skewed. Really completely skewed. I mean, think about historically. Yeah. Like LBJ and all that. Like it, it, historically, yeah. But it's those lines have become completely skewed in modern terms. Oh yeah, JFK I, got us in Vietnam for sure. I heard. Yeah. Well, it was LBJ that kind of really did it. But I heard something the <laughs> other day that um, kind of hit home with me, and it was one of the problems in today's political conversations is that both sides tend to demonize the worst points in the other side's arguments and that's all that they'll talk about Mm -hmm. so it stops the conversation yeah it stops the conversation because you're talking about something that's just moronic and the other side doesn't really think and then there's also the silent majority idea where the people that are louding yelling the loudest are the people that are just getting the most attention even though that's not really what so you have these I also think the Democrats are in the middle of their own Tea Party, and it's kind of freaky how similar it is because they, all these hardcore, hardcore progressives that just got voted into office just started up their own caucus called the Green New Deal Caucus, which is the 
exact thing that the Tea Party did when they started up the Freedom Caucus when they all got into office in 2010. So it's a little terrifying, and I don't think Democrats have quite recognized it because as someone who I used to consider myself a Republican, as like it is not, it's not terrifying. It sounds like a good idea until you watch it happen to Richard, your side. Richard, do you think that extreme is a response to extreme? Yes. Yes. Craziness breeds craziness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, yeah, and I'll just going back to what I was saying earlier, it's, it's, it's an entirely different conversation if you let someone say how they feel about the world and how mm-hmm. they view themselves than have the other person try to tell them, no, because of the identity you're presenting with me, this is how you feel. But it's a lot different if you're saying no. I mean, like, hey, as a Republican, what are you passionate about? And you're saying, well, I'm passionate about my family. And I think it's really important that I can have a job and that I can go to work and I can support them. Mm-hmm. And then a Democrat, when they hear that, is they're going to say, I feel the exact same way. But you know what? I also think that for the people that are struggling a little bit now, there's enough in the world that we can maybe make things a little less of a struggle for them. Mm-hmm. And I think a Republican hearing that would say, I'm willing to maybe hear about that as long as we've got the money to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when you can have, oh, that's welfare legislation. Mm -hmm. Like that's 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 how it works. But if you have it the other way where we're saying you only care about yourself and you don't give a shit about the poor. I don't want to hear about you going to church and donating money. You don't give a shit about the poor. No, the average Republican <laughs> fucking does because every American does because we're all Amer- we- The The thing that drives me the craziest is every time there's a school shooting and you hear this, the only reason they haven't done legislation is because they don't care about dead kids. You're like, that's the most vile thing that you could possibly say. They have a different solution for what the progressive, so, I guess, progressive solution would be to that. But to say that they don't care, like that only stops the conversation. To yeah. say that, that they don't care that kids are being murdered is a, quite frankly, extremely vile thing to say. Yeah, I think you that's know? right. I think that's right. I mean, I'm, I'm not really a strong to a uh, libertarian or conservative, but I, I think that's probably right, is that there's no better way to shut down actual substantive dialogue yeah. than to impugn the worst possible motive onto your political <laughs> opponent. Yeah. It, it, do you think, Jake, that uh, social media has been the root of the, of um, like creating okay, the, a, yes. the illusion of a, a divide? The, this is a great question. CNN and social media have right. destroyed America. <clears throat> I actually, and, and, I, I, have, and, I have two different ones. Did you say right. Satan and social media? CNN. And just oh, a, just CNN. A, a What's the difference? Just, just for clear, <laughs> yes, I did. And just as a follow-up question, do you see a solution through social media? Oh, God. Um, okay, so this is a good question. I think there are two things that really spoiled the 21st century. The first being what you asked about social media, and the second being Foucault, who was a philosopher out of France who saw everything as just power dynamics and who really, I think, has a lot of the ideological under... He, he fostered and proffered a lot of the ideological underpinnings of what we're going through right now in terms of seeing everything in terms of straight white cisgendered male versus not straight white cisgendered male. And and that, that sort of unidimensional analysis that everybody applies to everything, I think that Foucault had a lot to do with that. Um, he sort of took these Marxist roots and coupled it with modern philosophy and sent it on its way. And it found uh, it found an incubator in the universities. Okay, on to the social media. <laughs> I mean, I think... <clears throat> Yeah, the French suck at everything. But I think that uh, <laughs> um, 
9-11 had a lot to do with that though too because we we were we had an innocence and that was shattered and that of course made us more hostile not only to foreign threats but to domestic threats and we kind of stopped seeing the other side as the opposition party and uh, started seeing them more as a threat to democracy but from all fronts. do you think events such as 9-11... Mike. Yeah. Do you think events such as 9-11 or social media... Like, do you think they, they kind of went hand in hand with creating this toxic environment of putting words in your opponent's side rather than wanting to actually listen? I mean, not 11 came five I, or I six like, years first. I'd like to finish right, my thoughts right. on So what I'm trying media. to say, <laughs> excuse me? I'd like to finish my thoughts on yeah, social go ahead, media. Jake. Or go even ahead. start them. Uh, no, go ahead. Yeah, so I mean. <laughs> the pr- Hog in the mic over there. <laughs> Jesus. Nobody complained of me hogging the mic when I was the only one who read about arbitration before going into this interview. I read about arbitration before. <laughs> you just going had no questions whatsoever. Was I hogging the mic then? Okay. We had so a sit system. down, Richard. Sit down. <laughs> I uh, haven't stood up. <laughs> Mr. Rome. All right. So social media. The, the promise. Jim Rome, take it away. <laughs> the, the promise of social media was supposed to be that it would bring people together and that it would help connect you with people and we would all see that humanity is this wonderful, beautiful thing and that we're all so much alike. That promise has not been delivered on. I don't see how it will be delivered on. And I think that we're ill-equipped to use social media. It's an entirely new fora where you can say literally whatever it's on your mind and you don't have to say it into somebody else's face. This is obviously the, these are the points that have been made over and over and over again. So in terms of, do I think social media has created this mess in and of itself. No, I, I think that there's obviously other social factors such as 9-11 going on and such as the war on terror mm-hmm. and uh, a host of other things. Do I think it's helped? Absolutely not. I mean, talk about fanning the flames or perhaps even being the fuel with which the flames are started. Can social media fix it? No, it only has made it worse up until this point. And it's done so under the guise of making things better and saying how great and awesome they are. And, and they're not... They're they're nothing but disingenuous with the people that use their own platforms. They hide what they're doing. They got us to agree to all these agreements, and now they can harvest up our data and mine it and sell it to whoever they want. And they they show no signs of slowing down. In fact, there was an article that came out was it New York Times this week that showed that Sheryl uh, Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg knew about the Russia yeah. the Russians using the platform and they didn't see it as that right. Big they of they threat. took a very lackadaisical approach to it, and then after came full front that they uh tried to hide it yeah <laughs> right that so i mean out. like if, if if a surgeon goes in and botches a back surgery you don't send in that same surgeon surgeon to fix his work i mean it just that's not how this this is they also the, came, came to power with connecting the world and i think there's something to be said about what you just said and the whole the road to hell is paved with good intentions right so uh I've many a times thought about just losing. I mean, the only times I use Facebook at this point is Dialogue De Novo. Yeah. Right. For better or worse. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Thanks, Zuckerberg, uh, for making Ryan, that necessary. About social, social media, media and the impacts it had on democracy. Yeah. So I'm not a fan. I made a Facebook uh, for uh, law school purposes. And mm-hmm. I mean, the day after graduation, I can't wait to delete it. Um, <laughs> but now I have like, there's so many things I have to like voice to the entire school that it's the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I think That's Jake where brought the social it, part comes in the social bit. Yeah. 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 You know, and it's just sort of like I think what Jake said about there not being a face to face communication anymore, I think that's it. Like and the second time of bringing up Louis C. K. and when 
in one day, but he had that joke with his kids when he would watch his girls like cyber bully. Mm -hmm. And they were like, there's a huge factor that's missing. It's, it's missing the crying face of the person that you wronged while doing so. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. how like you don't learn that, Ooh, I, I hurt this person. And like, depending on how you react to it. Oh, well, good. I hope they're crying or, Oh, maybe I screwed up. Like that's, that's growth and how we like, become human Mm -hmm. and i think the whole social media thing it allows us to have these fights about issues that we're not even passionate about personally just don't care about at all i just i wrote this down on my notepad and it's it's sitting on my uh like my coffee table at home and it's just like stop talking about things you don't care about brian (laughs) because i'll like and every morning i'll look up and i read that yeah and it's like it's just i'm trying to like ingrain it into my head like stop pick like pick your battles almost mm-hmm. but like right. how many times have i gone to like streeters and argued for two hours about like public unions and whether or not they can require every employee to like pay their fair share which like yeah i think that's a good thing right but pick your I, battles i didn't almost. love that mm-hmm. case but like that's not what i'm really passionate about mm-hmm. i I don't yeah. think I don't think First Amendment rights include money, but that's just the way it is now. So, well, like, I mean, we're all it f- makes sense. We're all f- we're we're uh, uniquely situated in that we are receiving one of the most stringent and uh, difficult educations that you that is attainable in our society, and that it's sort of up to people of like like us who have been learned on these subjects to have these sorts of debates. So, I mean. In terms of getting heated and upset about an argument, I can see why picking your battles would be a necessary thing to do. But in terms of having intellectual discussions, such as the one that we had here this afternoon, is I think it's eminently important and uniquely falls on our shoulders yeah. to do so. Uh, back to the social media issue, though, real quick. Mm-hmm. I would like to say that we can't discount the advent of the smartphone and all of this either because yeah. we're social, like social media, Facebook 2007, there wasn't really such a thing as a smartphone, but well, maybe there were early generations. I don't remember. No, nope. I, I, I had a razor. Smartphone up until, came out in, <laughs> I think 2008. I had okay. a flip phone until uh, 2013. Yeah. I had one up until I think my sophomore year of college. I liked it anyway. So I, if, <laughs> yeah. if social media existed in this yeah. context where we left our houses at 9am and came back at 5pm and whatever was still on our mind, then we posted to Facebook, you know, it, I think it would be a much more, uh, it would be a much less hostile place. But the, the fact that we have the immediacy and Twitter yeah. is uniquely adapted, adapted for this to send off like a one liner and watch it get ratioed or how many likes and comments you get. Uh, and you can really, you get the worst instincts of everybody on Twitter, especially yeah. right. <laughs> to kind of draw back on what Brian was saying. And it's an inter- interesting link there. The invention of the telephone made it to where you could yell at someone without having to look at their face. <laughs> and now the invention of the smartphone has made it to where you can yell at someone without even having to hear them cry as you're yelling. <laughs> so it's made it. It's really the it's I really blame Alexander Graham Bell for all of this. I I love that. that. Guy. Yeah, you're so, you're you're so removed. It's like yeah. do you really do, do you even think that there's a person at the other end on a computer typing things out? Like probably not. I mean, yeah. my friends will just they'll they'll argue with like weirdos we went to high school with that for some reason they're still Facebook friends with. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm just like first you're embarrassing yourself in front of everyone. But second of all, like 
you would never even want to have these conversations with this person in the first place. Like I would, I, I, I seek out conversations with you guys or other people that I think are like smart where we're going to have a good debate yeah. and things like that. But like there's people are just like, they're just like begging the internet to present me with a way that I can show off my like sparring abilities and how I really care, mm -hmm. you know, like it's all. And the fact that it's all public too, like, if no, no one, yeah. no one really cares about these conversations because if they did, they would have them privately. I like to think, yeah. yeah. But yeah. everything is like, no, I'm not gonna just personally message you. I want everybody who we went to high school to also watch. Like exactly. that, I'm gonna fucking own you right now. And then every <laughs> once in a while, to win these arguments, they will post a video of someone owning someone else. To own. it's like a you can't even do it yourself anymore. It's, it's, just, I, I think it's very interesting because it's almost like social media. Is oh a, yeah. It's it's a facilitator. Yeah. Right. Mm. And we all have different intents as to why we want to, you know, use social media <laughs> and what for. So yeah. you can do it for really good things and, you know, GoFundMe. There are. Example. Yeah. Uh, but then it's also we're intrinsically uh, we have fear of the unknown. I think this is something that uh, we've mentioned previously. So uh -huh. social media has spread misinformation more than a pursuit for a truth. Yeah. Right? And I think that's I mean, uh, I personally believe that Trump is. Uh, the result of that of fear just running amok in social media right we've somehow tapped into our so, and, then, and then and this is I mean yeah. I don't think we can have like an in-depth discussion about this but I'd like to have it at one point which is is democracy as it is the American framework for democracy is it compatible with the way we're running social media today and I think it's an interesting conversation which one needs to come down Hmm. Well, I vote wow. social media. Wow, <laughs> me too. This is the anarchy yeah. and bloodlust of dialogue, De Novo. Uh, uh, no, but I think it's an interesting thing to ponder because people usually just see social media as like, oh, what do you mean? It's like yeah. they, they don't question the implications that they've it's had in just, re just yeah. five years. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. It's there, crazy. And the, the crazy thing is, there are demonstrable good things that have come. Like I have friends that live in Israel. I have friends that live in France that. I do. I am able to still stay in touch with because mm -hmm. of Facebook and things like that. Because calling on the phone, one, who has the time to do that? But and, and you know, if you call instead of text, you're a terrorist. But <laughs> uh, but that's so funny. I'm a, I'm a caller. Yeah, I, I still uh, call. Oh god, Love my it. friends used to hate it when I was in high school. That I would call and be like, "Hey man, hey, do you have Taylor's number?" They'd be like. I, Doing great. How are you? I'd be like, no, no, no. Just give me the information. Texting changed my life. Uh, but, you know, phone calls to people abroad, it's a ridiculous amount. So now I can do it for free and just be able to talk. So there are demonstrable good things that have come from social media, but it's just the bad is just awful. No, it's, it's so it's, it's a tool, right? And it's yeah. a tool for good and a tool for evil. And I don't think we're, we're prepared to manage the damage that can come from social media. I mean, regardless of what you think of movements like um, um, the Me Too or Black Lives Matter, those are good things, you know, that get, get, it gets people together and it brings a conversation to the forefront of, of, of a national discussion, regardless of what you think it's a good or bad thing. But sure. I think we can all agree that for someone to be promoting genocide um, uh, through social media and then instilling fear through misinformation so people go out and kill others simply because they're different race or ethnicity is horrible, and we're starting to see that in parts of the world. Um, Jake actually disagrees with you. Right. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I 
keep letting them back in my house. <laughs> All right, Brian, I'm being mindful of the time here. So do you have any uh, final thoughts for our listeners? Final thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, what's well, your closing message? Can, to the can I ask a question right before this? Just bringing it back to arbitration. Yeah, 100%. So something I agree with you 100% is that arbitration needs more transparency. We definitely need more transparency. So what are, are there remedies that you would like to see uh, for a fair system? Right. So, you know, it, it, it's funny. I mean, you want to think, I mean, is there a, is more transparency necessarily in everything good? And like, typically it is. I mean, but there, I mean, we can imagine that you, there are disagreements that we have that we'd like to keep private because there's no reason why anyone else really needs to hear about it. Mm -hmm. right. Things like, um, a divorce proceeding or, you know, things like, like there are, I can think in my head or two companies, you know, you know, fighting over whether or not a chip was zero, zero, one, two, three versus zero, zero, one, two, four yeah. trade secrets, you know, things like that. Like, I think like, I don't, I don't, I don't need to hear that. I don't, I don't need to hear the inner workings of it. I think where the rights of individuals are being, um, taken away where you have someone of ex you know extremely unequal bargaining power and they are forcing you to fight in a certain arena that like the public gets to see what that fight is okay. and so like for arbitration in general i'm sort of like i, I don't really care because like I, I guess like going back to what i said like none of these fights should be in arbitration at, at all yeah. you know i mean they're all they're all being brought by the corporation against the employee or the consumer. That's very telling. But they they never were arbitrated twenty years ago, and there is a reason why. It's because society didn't think that that was okay. Society didn't think that that was worthwhile, um, or we just didn't think. And so, for like arbitration specifically, I would like more regulation as far as flagging bad arbitrators but I, I more than anything else i would like some sort of you know i would like congress to come out and say there are contracts that can be arbitrated and there are con contracts that shouldn't for very reasonable policy reasons mm -hmm. and so that's what i would like to see i think more than anything in the future and i think maybe we can get there because i think it's coming to a head that I think everybody after Lewis v. Epic Systems, the Supreme Court case that made these class waivers reasonable, I think the best write-up I had was it was a, an attorney that worked on the employment side, and he said, the result of this case is that it's not good for the employee, it's not really good for the employer, um, this is a decision that's, there's very little positive or it's great for the employer, but it's, it's, and he was sort of, he kind of said that by taking this case, I'm putting myself out of work because I'm a class defense attorney. So it's not good for us and it's not good for people. Um, but I thought that was really telling that the one sort of result of this case is that it's a decision that no one in this country wanted except for the general counsel of Ford and the general counsel of McDonald's. And for the shareholders who are going to get more um, profit because they're not going to be sued as much for, you know, 
flagrant violations of law. And so I think that's sort of like the result of this case is we're just stuck with a shitty law. And I think when we go to law school, we assume that um, the judicial branch is how we can solve every problem. And I'm realizing after being in law school for two and a half years that the legal field is not where the highest battles fought. It's in politics. And so I think kind of coming out of this case, I hope that everybody who you know feels how I do, feels about you guys, realizes that um, there might be a better solution and it might just be as simple as calling your senator. Hmm. All right, Brian Gibbons, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Thank you, Brian. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks, Brian. And remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, all that stuff. Talk to you later. Bum 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 bum